friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me and them to Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, this morning, we're continuing a series in Isaiah 6 called A Vision of God. And we're doing so in the prayer that Isaiah's vision of God is something uh, that we catch, that we have. And that in the same way Isaiah was transformed and changed by having this vision, uh, we too might be transformed and changed. So this morning we're looking at verses 2 to 5, but we are going to read all seven verses. Um, I want to remind you that God's word is sufficient. Um, That means that God's word tells us everything we need to know for salvation and for living in godliness in this world. The Bible speaks to how we might become a Christian and how we ought to live as a Christian. Now, admittedly, the Bible doesn't tell you everything that you want to know. It doesn't answer every question you have about life. But because God is good and loving, he does tell us everything we need to know. Everything we need to know about fellowship with him now in this world and fellowship with him into eternity by having eternal life through Jesus Christ. So God's word is a good and sufficient word for us. I invite you, if you're able, to stand with me. Standing is an act of worship for the reading and the receiving of God's sufficient word. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, lifted high, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated and join me in asking the Lord's help and assistance at this time. Father, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word. Thank you that in order to know more about you, your son, your plan of salvation, what it means to live as Christians, we don't have to go scaling the highest mountains or diving into the deepest oceans. Instead, we look to your word and we hear your voice and we know you. I pray, O Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would impress the very truths each of us individually need to hear and to receive that you would seal it into our hearts by conviction that we might be a people formed by your word and transformed by your spirit. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, the title of our sermon is God's Humbling Holiness. And I want to talk about holiness today, or humility today, excuse me, because humility is the mark of a Christian. It's the mark of a Christian who is following in the footsteps of a humble Savior. Well, the question is, how might, be, how might you become humble or how might you exhibit humility? Well, on the one hand, some of you may think that uh, self-examination, looking in, self-evaluation uh, will produce humility. 
But in the end, that kind of humility is self-generated. It's something that you bring about in yourself. You look down, you diagnose the problem, then you come up with a solution and you become more humble. But the humility that the Bible argues for is the humility where you look at something, you, you behold something, you gaze at something. And in that process, you are being humbled. Right? It's quite different. Have you ever thought about that for a moment? How do you practice humility? How are you humble? And for sometimes we think, oh, it means talking less. And what we mean by that is uh, don't talk about yourself so much. Don't draw attention to yourself. That's, that's how I'm humble. And for other people, maybe it means talking more. I'm always diverting attention to other people. I'm always complimenting other people. When others uh, lift you up, you, you put yourself down. And especially those from an Asian culture, this is how you're taught to be humble. I wrestle with it. Doesn't happen every week, but sometimes people come after the service and say, Pastor, that was a great sermon. And I don't know it wasn't. It's all God. And but being humble and being humbled are two different things, aren't they? Being humble requires your effort. Being humbled is something done to you. Have you ever stood on top of a mountain and taken in the view of everything below? or gazed at a massive waterfall, closed your eyes and just heard the sound of crashing water falling down, or been on a boat overlooking the vast expanse of the ocean. In those moments, you don't have to tell yourself to be humble. What you see, what you behold, it humbles you. It puts you in your place. And that's the kind of humility that Christians should exhibit, the kind of humility others should see in the life of a Christian which means humility is not about mastering a technique, but humility is found in catching a vision. The vision that Isaiah saw, a vision of God's holiness. And that's what we're going to spend our time considering. Humility in light of God's holiness. So jump down with me. Let's begin at verse 2. We see the activity of the seraphim. Remember, the seraphim are majestic, angelic creatures. They're flying around. And these creatures have been in God's presence since they were created. And being in God's presence, what they sing about God is what they're most impressed about God. Now, we can look at people and we can judge them for what we think is impressive about them. But in order to really know what they're like, in order to know the core of their being, you have to ask those closest to them. Uh, for example, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he may be a name that you guys are familiar with. Uh, he is one of the most significant preachers in the 20th century. He was a Welsh preacher preaching out of London. And everyone knew him for being a mighty man of God's word. And yet, his wife said about him, his wife who knew him better than anybody, said this, no one will understand my husband until they realize that he is, first of all, a man of prayer. You are impressed at his preaching ability. But what I'm most impressed with, because I know him most, is his prayer life. In the same way, the angels have stood in the presence of God since they were created. And they know far more about God than you and I know about him. And in their song, it's as if they're saying, no one will understand God until you realize he is first and foremost holy. So the song they sing in verse 3 they're calling to one another and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What happens? Verse four, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. 
It's a beautiful picture. It shows that there's no timid singing in heaven. The praise in heaven is mighty. It's loud. It's thunderous. What might it look like if that kind of praise was coming out of this church and this sanctuary that the foundations of this building shook because there was a mighty roar, not because we have the bass so loud, but because God's people were singing. Now, here's the scene. The angels behold God's holiness, and that elicits praise. Praise just erupts out of them. Now, you would think that I would then say, if you behold God's holiness, praise should erupt out of your mouth. But that's not what I'm going to say. Because if you look at the scriptures, Isaiah then sees God's holiness and praise doesn't erupt out of his mouth. Isaiah sees God's holiness and it's not a song that comes forth. Isaiah sees God's holiness and what happens? His very first utterance is a humble confession of his spiritual state. This is one of three things I'd like us to see today. A vision of God's holiness humbles you before him and confession that you are a needy sinner. Isaiah sees God's holiness, and he starts confessing. Verse 5, and I said, woe is me. Now, Isaiah is not the first person in the Bible who responded to God like this. Some of you might think that if you saw God, you say, oh, you do exist, or you see God and you run into his arms. No, friends, if you see a vision of God in his holiness, the very first words that come out of your mouth is, woe is me. I am a needy, desperate sinner. The Old Testament sufferer, Job, and seeing God says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In the New Testament, Peter in Luke 5 says, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down on Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It is the pattern for human beings to see the holiness of God and not erupt in glad and joyful praise, but to fall on their knees into the ashes in confession of their sin. Now, why? What's the difference? Why do the angels see God's holiness and they praise, but Isaiah sees God's holiness and he confesses his sin? And the answer is this. It's because the angels, although created in finite beings, the angels are sinless. And as sinless creatures, they stand before the holiness of God and they see it as beautiful, praiseworthy, and they sing his praise. But you and I are not sinless. People like you and me and Isaiah and Job and Peter, when we see God's holiness, our sin is exposed and it's not a beautiful thing. It's life-threatening. R.C. Sproul, a great theologian, spent much of his ministry teaching on God's holiness. And do you know what he calls this, this moment? He calls it the trauma of holiness. He says, it's a traumatic event for a sinner to stand in light of the holiness of God. Because when God shows you your sin, not because he's shining a flashlight on it, but simply because radiating from his character is a holiness, it exposes everything in us. So we can't deny it anymore. We can't downplay it. We can't make excuses. We can't blame shift. We can't run away. We can't ignore the truth. Have you ever opened up your blinds or your curtains early in the morning? And as soon as you do, the piercing morning sun comes shining through and it shines through so radiantly. But then what does it do? It exposes all the dust 
under your couch, on your coffee table, maybe even the dust layered over your Bible because you haven't picked it up in a while. Now you can draw the curtains, you can close the blinds, make it dark again, but the damage has been done. What's exposed, now you know, it's been revealed. So now you know the dust, you close the blinds, but you know it's there. So what do you say? Woe is me, for I am in an unclean room and I dwell in the midst of an unclean house. The same is true when God's holiness exposes sin. It's so piercing, it's so revealing that you can no longer live under the delusion that you are a good person, that you only occasionally make some mistakes, that your sins are minor and they're not really that bad because I know some other people who've done much worse. You see, when you see your sins in light of God's holiness, it humbles you into confession. Dear friends, anybody who claims to be a Christian but doesn't see the sinfulness of their hearts, doesn't see the offensiveness of their attitude and their arrogance, their sin, their actions, this isn't a problem of a lack of self-awareness. This is a problem of a lack of God-awareness. Why don't you know your sin? It's not because you don't have enough uh, emotional intelligence to look inside of you and see your sin. Why don't you know your sin and its true death? Because you haven't seen God clearly enough. This is the vertical humility. You see God's holiness and it humbles you into confession. I'm a sinner desperately in need of his grace. A beggar who comes empty-handed because I need what only he can give. Now, why does God's holiness do this? Because I think for some of us in this room, it, like, that offends you or just makes you feel like, why would God want to do that? And we have the thought that God in his holiness exposes our sins so that what? So that you might know how much he hates you? Absolutely not. He's so gracious, he reveals his holiness so you see your sins so that you know how much he loves you. Because then you see what he's done for us in Christ and you know the depth of his heart for us. We see God's holiness, it humbles us into confession. That's the first thing. But when you see God's holiness, it doesn't just vertically humble you, it horizontally humbles you. Because anybody, any Christian who claims that they're unrighteous before God can't then turn around and look at the people around you and claim that you're self-righteous before them. Oh, I'm unrighteous before God, but I'm more righteous than the people. No, that's not how it works. We tend to say this. Many of you may have uh, made this connection before. Um, Christians who claim to know God and then are extremely judgmental and harshly critical toward others, they exhibit no humility, only arrogant superiority. You understand, they fail to grasp the grace of God, right? I mean, if God has shown patience and compassion toward them in their sin and you turn around, you can't show any grace and compassion, then you say, bro, there's a gospel gap between what you know and the way you're living, what you've received and what you're giving. That's a gospel gap. They've not grasped the grace of God, but you know what they've also failed to grasp? The holiness of God. You can't stand before the holiness of God, see your sin, see that you're no better than anybody else, and then turn around and be severely critical, judgmental in your attitude, condemnatory for people in their beliefs and in their behavior. Which is the second thing I want to draw your attention to. A vision of God's holiness humbles you before others, by crucifying your self-righteous spirit. Take a look with me in the scriptures to see this. If you turn and you look at the beginning of Isaiah, 
You'll see from Isaiah 1 to Isaiah 5, a series of Isaiah's judgments against the wicked. Right? Remember, who was Isaiah? He was a prophet, meaning he was God's mouthpiece. And as God's in, uh, instrument, as God's servant, uh, he declared God's judgment against the sins of the people. And so actually for the first five chapters of Isaiah, it's just the judgments against God's people. Now, all of this climax is in Isaiah 5, verses 8 to 30. The little subtitles, woe to the wicked. Now, woe, by the way, pronouncing woe in the Bible is not an exclamation of surprise, right? It's not like the matrix, like, whoa. You know, it's, a, it's, an, it's not Keanu Reeves' woe. It's a woe is me. There is a judgment upon me, God's curse against sinners and transgressors. And something similar is happening in Isaiah 5 to what some of you may remember in Matthew 23. It's a very famous chapter where Jesus is standing with the Pharisees and he issues seven woes. Seven, you know, is the biblical number for completion. I mean, it's a complete judgment against the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, their dead spirituality. And uh, Matthew is actually quoting a lot from Isaiah, if you, if you know his gospel. But Isaiah has something very similar. It's not seven woes, but it's six woes. And so let me read them to you. In verse 8. It says, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. So six woes, six utterances of God's judgment upon the wicked. But if there's a parallel between Matthew and Isaiah, where's the seventh woe? And you look at it and you say, well, there's no seventh woe here, but dear friends, there is. The seventh woe comes in chapter six. And it's not a woe that Isaiah pronounces over God's enemies. It's a woe he pronounces over himself. The seventh and final judgment of God that Isaiah makes is not over the spiritually adulterous, debaucherous, godless people. It's a woe Isaiah declares over himself. So he says in verse five, the seventh and final woe, woe is me. Now think about that for a moment. If anybody had the spiritual credentials to look out at other people and judge them, if anybody had the spiritual resume to feel superior to others, it was Isaiah. He was a servant of God, the mouthpiece of the Lord. And yet he sees God's holiness. He sees other people's sins and he says, woe is me. I'm not superior to anybody. I'm not better than you. You're not worse than me. Together we're sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. You see, this is the kind of humility that seeing God's holiness produces in us. You realize that when you stand unrighteous before God, you can't then stand self-righteous before others. And yeah, that's missing in our lives because so many of us shamefully are far more critical and judgmental and arrogant than we care to admit. I mean, do you have an arrogant attitude and a self-righteous spirit? You know, sometimes it's evidence in our silent judgments. We judge other people's, other parents' just parenting. You judge how they're spending their money. 
you judge those who came later than you, even though you came late. You judge people for all kinds of things. The way they look, the way they dress, they wore those shoes. He got that haircut. And you think to yourself, if that's not how you would do it, or if that's not how you're doing it, or if that's not how you did it, then you look down upon it. Some of us, we, we vocalize our superiority. Some of us are so blinded to our self-righteousness that we think everybody else so desperately needs my help, my insights, my advice, my expertise. And this is really for their good, your good. So you tell them what they're doing is unwise or wrong or needs improvement. You are the master expert at giving unsolicited advice. So you always want to make your opinions. No, no, this is just for your benefit. So I'm going to correct you. I'm going to comment on some big things like your theological precision, your political views, to even little things. And this is the thing of spouses where I'm just going to comment on, you know, the better way you could have put the groceries back in the fridge because this is an inefficient use of space. Or why did you park there? It's raining and that part is... is And what do we do? We sit in a high chair by which we judge other people. Friends, do you find yourself saying, woe is you, but never coming around to realizing, woe is me? This is the litmus test for having a self-righteous attitude and critical spirit. How does God's holiness then humble us when we see him as infinitely holy and how terribly far we fall short? And then we look around and everyone else that we think we're better than, that we judge and lord ourselves over, is in the same boat with us. It has a way of crucifying that spirit and that attitude. Here's the third and last thing I want to point out. A vision of God's holiness humbles you to see the best things about you can't save you. The best things about you can't save you. Now, what do I mean by that? Isaiah goes on to say in verse 5, For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says, I'm lost. That's translated as, I'm undone. I'm ruined. I'm cut off. I'm doomed to die. And the reason he gives is because he's a man of unclean lips. That means his lips are polluted with sin. Now, why is this such catastrophic news for him? Because for Isaiah, as a mouthpiece of God, as a servant of the Lord, speaking God's judgments, his lips were his righteousness. His lips were his identity. His lips were his worth and his value. His lips were the best part about him. And yet, in light of God's holiness, he realizes that even his lips are tainted with sin. Even the best he has to offer God is really not that great. His greatest strength is actually a weakness. His cherished asset is actually a liability. And then to make things worse, his lips, he says, is just as unclean as the people around him. The thing that makes him better and best is actually not much better than anybody else. And what does that mean for you? Humility involves realizing that the best things about you aren't as great as you think they are. 
Therefore, those best things cannot be what you base your life around. They cannot be the source of your identity and your significance. They cannot be what you run to to affirm your worth and your value. Simply put, the best things about you cannot save you. So the question is, what is that best thing about you? What is it that gives you place and position before others? Is it your intellect? Is it the things you know? Is it your handiness? Your humor? Your beauty? Your faithfulness? Your reliability? What are those things? In essence, I'm asking, what do you cling to as your righteousness? You may know that the right answer is Christ, yet functionally we are clinging to so many other things, things we believe make us matter to people, make us interesting, make us important, make us set apart, make us valuable, make us lovable, make us likable. Whatever you're holding on to, that is your righteousness. That is the best thing you believe about yourself. A friend of mine told me this story recently. He has a son who loves, loves dinosaurs. And some of you, uh, maybe your children are like this. Uh, when they love dinosaurs, they have like in, uh, the knowledge of like an encyclopedia in their head. They know everything about dinosaurs. Well, his son was struggling in a subject in school. Teacher, you know, wrote a note and your son is really struggling with this. So both parents decided we're going to help him. And so every night they've been sitting down with him to uh, work on his homework with him. And... Um, they were working on this assignment and their son was getting really discouraged because they were having such a hard time grasping the material. And so, you know, in parental love and, and comfort, they said, it's okay. You know, sometimes school is hard. And their son looked at them, totally uncomforted by their words and said, but I'm still the dinosaur guy, right? I still, I still know more about dinosaurs than all the other kids. At that young age, what was he doing? He was seeking his validation and identity, worth and value through a kind of righteousness, something impressive about himself, the best thing about him. You see, friends, for him it was dinosaurs, but what is your dinosaur? For Isaiah it was his lips, but what is yours? The best thing about you, the thing you're tempted to cling to as your savior. But standing in God's holiness, you realize even the best things about you can't save you. They can't give you what you're looking for. You know, so many of us, we tend to think of humility like this. We think of humility as your willingness to uh, admit your weaknesses and that, you know, there's still room to grow. So we say, oh, a humble guy says, yeah, I'm not that great at this. You know, I need to work on this and I'll keep doing better. We think that's what humility is. But real humility, biblical humility, is looking at your strengths and being willing to admit, even this is not that great. Even this cannot save. Even this is not my identity and it can't be my hope. You see, friends, if you have this kind of humility, you'll walk into a room and no longer be concerned with whether you are the smartest person, the prettiest person, the most capable person. You'll be able to walk into a room and not be threatened and feel insecure over who's better than you, who knows more than you, who's getting more laughs, who's getting more likes. 
the best things about you, what people praise and recognize you for, will not be a source of pride to hold on to as you realize it's only the righteousness of God that you need. Isaiah's vision of God's holiness humbles him. If you get a vision of God's holiness, it will humble you, whether you like it or not. And yet there is a way that we can like it. How might we want to embrace humility, love humility, desire humility, and that's to have another vision. It's to have a vision of the gospel. Because you know what the gospel gives you? Not just a picture of a holy God, but the picture of a humble God. Friends, the gospel is the good news that the thrice holy God, the holy, holy, holy God, took on human nature. He lowered himself into his very own creation, was born as a finite and frail baby. And we read in Luke 135, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. This is our humble king. And although holy and sinless in every way, he came to dwell among the unholy and the sinful. He came to dwell among those of unclean lips, so we read in Mark 2, 16 that Jesus comes and the Pharisees look at him and they ask, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? He is our humble king. And because he's full of grace and mercy, he did not come to the world to judge the world, but to save the world. He took the woe of God's wrath met and deserved for your sin upon himself. He spared you from the curse and saved you by his cross. So Galatians 3 tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed, woe upon everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is our humble king. See, the Bible miraculously gives us two visions, doesn't it? On the one hand, it gives us Isaiah 6, the vision of a holy king. And then it goes on to give us Philippians 2, a vision of a humble king. And there Paul writes, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ our Savior humbled himself for you. You see, when you see God's holiness, you are humbled. But when you see God's humility, you're transformed to be humble. I'm going to close with this illustration taken from the life of the Apostle Paul, who himself grew in gospel humility. We tend to have a static view of the Apostle Paul, as if once he became a Christian, he was what he was and nothing else. But the life of Apostle Paul is startling and surprising and has much to teach us. Before Paul met God, he had every reason to self-righteously boast about himself because he was, in religious terms, better than all of his peers. He had every right to look down upon them. He writes in Philippians 3, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I am better. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law, a Pharisee, as the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I'm better than you. Paul had the type of religious resume by which he could say, woe is you and not woe is me. And yet, on the road to Damascus, 
Paul has a vision of God wherein the Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself. And from that moment, his life is changed. The humility enters. So that in one of his first epistles, early in his ministry, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul confesses these words, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. He went from, I'm better than all of you, to among the apostles, I'm the worst one, the bottom tier, the last pick. I'm not even worthy to be mentioned among those great men. And yet as he grew in Christ, he didn't grow in spiritual self-righteous arrogance, but he grew in humility. Because a few years later in his ministry, he writes Ephesians. And in Ephesians 3.8, he goes further and he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. He went from I'm better than all of you to I'm the least of the apostles now to I'm the least among all the Christians. He considered himself lower than the very people he was discipling and teaching. You see, as Paul grew in Christ, he didn't grow in spiritual self-righteous arrogance, but in humility. And toward the very end of Paul's life, the tail end of his ministry, in one of his last letters, 1 Timothy 1:15, he writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. By the time he's finished his race, now Paul is calling himself the worst of all sinners, the chief of them, the least deserving among the world. He went from, I'm better than all of you. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the least among Christians. To I'm the least and most scum of the earth. And he viewed himself as worse than even those he evangelized and witnessed to. This is a picture of gospel-produced humility that can be true in your life. Friends, as you see the holiness of God and the humility of your Savior, you will grow in deeper confession of sin and the need for his grace. You will become increasingly freed from self-righteousness and arrogance because you discover you're not better than others. And you can let go of the best things about you because you know your righteousness and identity are found in Christ. You catch a vision of God's holiness. You see the humility of Christ, our Savior. And we will be a humble people. Would you bow your heads with me?